walk into. And before we get right into it, um, I want to share just a few things. And so if you're a guest with us today, or maybe this is your first time, uh, you can just check out for just a second, maybe uh, read through the program or finish filling out your Connect card. But there's a few things that I just want to draw our attention to, because this, this next six months has been something that the Lord has been birthing in my heart, in our hearts as leaders, uh, for about a year. And so we plan to begin to unpack the, what we feel is God's vision for our church. And so starting with the series, The Prodigal God, which we've already started, uh, if you have not yet signed up for a huddle, I encourage you uh, to sign up on your Connect card or let me know today that you want to be in one of those groups because the groups that are meeting are going to be interacting on Wednesday night or on Sunday afternoons with the message that I share on Sunday morning. And so you're going to find a way to, to talk about it, pray about it, apply it to your lives. Uh, we're going to walk out the word because how many of you men know that if you want to be a man of God, you've got to be a doer of the word? Men, come on. You want to be, this is what we learned yesterday. If you want to be a man of God, you can only be a man of God if you're a doer of the word. And so if you're not a doer of the word, you're just deceiving yourself. I don't care how much you can spit out. I don't care how many verses you've got memorized. If we're not doing them, we're not men and women of God. Yes, that's right. And that's what he said all day yesterday. So he drilled it into us. And a uh, great time we had uh, yesterday at our men's retreat. And so over the next several months as we start unpacking these series, one of the things we're going to talk about is that we have got to have a passion for the lost. Not just a passion more than we used to or a passion more than uh, the church down the street, but a passion equal to what God's passion is for the lost. That has to be a part of who we are. We also have to be a church that uh, has a passion to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit need to be more than just an encounter. It needs to be more than just an experience. It needs to be more than just something we do in a worship service. It needs to be something we do on a regular basis. And so we're going to walk through that and how that looks and what that looks like. And the, the last part of it is our relationships with one another. We have got to be intentional about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. It's, you are not going to connect with other believers unless you intentionally connect with them. You know, it's so interesting. I laughed when Pastor John talked about a weight room because when I was sitting here, the, the word that was in my heart was that if you want to go to a place you've never been before, you gotta do something you've never done before. And the illustration in my mind was that of a weight room. If you wanna get a muscle that you never had before, you can't lift the same amount of weights that you've been lifting. You've got to put something more on there. And I think Mark articulated that and Pastor John articulated that because I believe that's what the Spirit is saying to us. You cannot stay where you are and grow. Growth cannot happen unless there's change. And so if we just keep doing what we've been doing, we're going to keep getting the results we've been getting. Y'all better amen a lot better than this. We got to practice. So when I do this, that means you say amen, even if you didn't know what I just said. Okay, just do it. It'll help me, it'll help you, and we'll just keep moving a lot faster. And so this idea that I shared with us at the beginning of the service, for the next six months, I want to call us to pray like we have never prayed before. We are intentionally praying on Tuesday nights in House of Prayer. And I know for some of your schedules, um, you, Tuesday night doesn't work, and that's fine. I want you to pray individually like you've never prayed before. But if you're not coming 
coming on Tuesday night just because you don't see the, the, the value of it, can I challenge you at least for the next six months to just do it whether you see the value and don't just come and sit in a seat or sit in a pew, but actually engage your heart and pray what the Spirit puts in you because I believe the Scripture. I believe that God says when we gather together, He puts different things in each of our hearts and He wants us to actually open our mouths and begin to pray them and speak them and use them so that the body grows. And in our huddles, we're gonna be doing this in the prayer time in your huddle. If the Lord gives you a picture or a word, that's where you share it. You do, because if we're not praying together, we're not praying together. All right? And so we're intentionally making ways that we pray together more. I want you to pray individually more also, but together more. We have gotta be intentional about it. We've gotta be intentional about the gifts of the Spirit. Worship like never before. The worship part of a service is not just singing songs. If all we're doing is singing songs, I don't have time for it, and so I'll just stay home. If I wanna sing songs, I'll go watch Garth Brooks, okay? But worship is far more than just singing songs. Worship is warfare. The scripture says when we together corporately lift our voice and declare who God is, it actually does something in, in heavenly places that we don't see. And some of us are not getting results in our lives. This isn't even my sermon and I got so much to do. Um, we, we're not getting the results in our lives because with our mouths, we're creating an atmosphere. You don't have the marriage you want, okay? What are the words that you're speaking? If all you're doing is criticizing your spouse, if all you're doing is bleh at home, no wonder your relationship is what it is. You're creating an atmosphere, but if you start declaring the praises of God, if your spouse only does one thing well, praise them over and over for that one thing until they do two things well. And I'm sure that everyone's spouse does more than one thing well. But we cannot expect that we're gonna create some atmosphere where we're just, we're what, I shared this last week, we're waiting for God to send something down and God's like, I already sent it down, why don't you send it back up? Declare his praises, it's all through the scripture. People say, well I, I believe the scripture, I only do what the scripture says. Well the scripture says, lift up your holy hands every time we pray. And yet we don't do that. The scripture says, shout to, with joy to the Lord all the earth. The scripture says, declare his praises, not silently sit and meditate on them. It does say that also, but it says, declare them. You, I just got a testimony this week from someone that said, I've been listening to Christian music everywhere. I listen to it at home, I listen to it in the car, I listen to it in my earbuds when I exercise. We even play it for the dog when we're not home. And you won't believe, Pastor, the difference it's made in our lives. Yes, I would, because the scripture says it. And so if all we're going to say is, that's what we're going to get. So we've got to worship like never before. If you want to see something that you've never seen before, worship in ways you've never seen before. And make every effort to maintain the unity that the Spirit gives. That means intentionally engage with believers, especially when you get offended at someone. When we get offended at another believer, we feel like withdrawing from them. That is the opposite of what the scripture says to do. The scripture says, when you get offended at someone, you actually need to draw nearer to them. You actually need to bless them and honor them. And you don't have to tell them every little thing they've done wrong to you. Sometimes you just need to bless them because what they did wrong, they didn't intentionally do. And what they did wrong sometimes has more to do with me than it does with them. 
Amen. That was a great place to say amen. So we, if we're not intentional about these things, and this is what we're going to talk about for the next six months, um, I also am going to ask for your help. I'm going to ask for your help. Okay, I don't want anyone to move your head to the left or to the right or behind you in this moment. I want you to stare straight ahead. Church, this worship service starts at 10 a.m. Could you be in a seat at 10 a.m.? Could you be in a seat in front of the overflow seating at 10 a.m.? The seats in front of that overflow seating will seat 140 people. We get about 75 on Sunday morning. We could double in size before we ever need to sit there. The reason that we're asking you to come closer is we're trying to help you intentionally interact with other believers. I know we all love our space. I love my space. Okay, and if you all start invading the front row, I don't know what I'll do because then I won't have space. But I want to encourage you at 10 o'clock, be in your seat. There is, as we did today, there's going to be an announce, a video that plays and there's a little countdown at the bottom of it. When we come out of Sunday school at 9.45, you have 15 minutes to be in a seat. How many people, when Garth Brooks started playing, were still hanging out in the lobby? Now, I know Stan isn't Garth Brooks, but we're not here to see Stan. <laughs> we're here to worship Jesus. And if they'll come to Garth Brooks and be in here, then we ought to come to Jesus and be ready to lift him up and declare his praises. And so, 10 o'clock, try to be in your seat. I know there's, please, and don't judge people. When you're in here, close your eyes and look ahead. Don't be looking around, oh, they're late, Pastor Thomas, they're late. That's not what this is about, Okay. When you come out of Sunday school, you've only got 15 minutes, okay? So keep that in mind. You've got 15 minutes because I believe what God wants to say and do in our lives, I believe we are in a crucial point in history, not just as a church individually, as our church, but the church worldwide, I believe, is in a crucial moment of history. And I believe it's time for the church to rise up. And I, I feel like we're starting to rise up, but in some ways, I feel like we're rising up in the flesh, we're trying to fight the, the spirits that are at work with flesh. And God wants us to step back and make sure we're fighting in the spirit. And really, a lot of that is gonna come out as we walk through the prodigal God. And so, as you've got, if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Luke chapter 15. And uh, we're gonna begin to walk through Luke chapter 15 over the next several weeks. And the subtitle for this prodigal God series is called Finding Your Place at the Table. Finding Your Place at the Table. And what that's talking about, this table that is used as, as an illustration, is because on one side of the table, we have the, the, the son, the lost son that's away from the father who wandered away. And we've got the other side of the table, we've got the son who stayed at home, the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. And there at opposite ends of this table and we're going to use that illustration if you went to the huddle last week you watched Tim Keller kind of illustrate that in a way and we're going to talk through that as we go through the weeks ahead but the interesting thing about this parable in Luke chapter 15 that we refer to as the parable of the prodigal son has mainly over the years been used as an emotional plea for lost sinners to come home 
we have used this story to pray for what we refer to as prodigals, which in our mind are the backslidden people. They were at one time a part of the church, and then they wandered away from the faith, and they are now prodigals. They are far from God. But that was not the original intent of Jesus, and that word prodigal actually never appears anywhere in the Bible other than your English tradition, your translation. In fact, it doesn't appear in the text at all. It might just be the heading, the story of the prodigal son. If you've got a Bible that's a little more accurate, it will call it the parable of the lost son. If you've got the right Bible, it will actually say the parable of the lost sons. Okay? None of the translations that I know of, by the way, actually translate it that way. That's why I said that. But that's actually what Jesus is teaching. And so as we walk through these parables, and as we walk through especially the story of the the prodigal son, I think it's going to change for some of us. And I think we're going to see that the son that is at home actually ends up being more lost than the brother that ran away. The son that stayed at home won't even come into the feast, even though the father invites him to come in. And so this underlying theme that we're going to see throughout each of these parables that climaxes in the last one is that how we relate to one another, how we relate to God's children, really is about how we relate to God our Father. Okay, we can't relate to each other well if we're not relating to our Father in a correct manner. And so in Luke chapter 15, the context of this story, um, because you have to pay attention to the context. For those of you that don't know, God is not an American. Yep. Prior to 1776, there was a whole world out there, okay? And most of the scripture, in fact, all of it, is not an American mindset, okay? We like to read things in the Bible and try to filter them through our American culture and our American viewpoint, and we miss what the scripture's actually saying, because this was written in another time and another place, and there are people that tell me, well, Pastor Tom, I read the Bible all the time, but I don't want to read commentaries, because commentaries are just man's opinion, and this is God's word. Well, that's actually a a, a false statement, because this is a, a man's translation of God's word, and a commentary doesn't just give you a man's opinion about the text, but they tell you the setting the text was written in. They tell you the audience that that was written to. And so it gives you a fuller understanding. So please don't write off commentaries and think, no, I should never read those because they're not that important. And so today, I really want to look at the context, who Jesus is talking to. Who are these people that are standing around Jesus when he tells these three stories in Luke chapter 15? There are two groups that we see in verses 1 and 2. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to hear Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. So we've got two groups. On this side, we've got the tax collectors and the sinners, and on this side, we've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the the tax collectors and the sinners are often gathering around Jesus, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are bothered by that because these guys are the moral outcasts of the society. And we find them in this story actually muttering among themselves, if your translation uses that word, they mutter among themselves, which really isn't a flattering description of them talking, but 
If you've ever walked into a room and people are muttering and then all of a sudden the room goes quiet, it's because the people that are muttering don't want to be heard. And I don't know that in the spirit there's actually ever a time to mutter because if what we're saying shouldn't be heard by everyone, it probably shouldn't be said at all. But what they're probably muttering is things like, can you believe that Jesus is associating with these people? Can you believe Jesus is eating with these people? Does he know who they are? Does he know the immoral lives that they live? Does he know that they don't come to church services regularly? Does he know that they sit in the overflow section every single week? Does he know what kind of people these are? I'm sure that's what the Pharisees were saying. And in fact, they were probably rationalizing that Jesus is probably watering down the message in order to attract them. See, we have this false idea that if sinners attend your church, it's because you're not preaching the truth. But yet when I see Jesus, who was the truth, teaching, it says that often tax collectors and notorious sinners gathered around him. So maybe if sinners aren't attending our church, maybe we're not teaching the truth. I'm not saying that everyone who has sinners attending their church is is teaching the truth. But we write it off. We make excuses and we think that these TV evangelists or these large churches are watering down the gospel just to draw a crowd and I don't think that's always the case. We think this idea of eating with people, by the way, is just, I mean, what's the big deal? But culturally, you didn't eat with someone at a table that you didn't agree with. Now, you could offer hospitality and you could invite someone in and you could sit them at your table, but you would dare not sit down at a table with them and eat if you were not of the same mindset, if you will. Jews did not eat with Gentiles. It just did not happen. It was unclean. It was unholy. Because when you sat down with them, it was a sign of approval of that behavior or that culture. And so when they did that, when Jesus did that, what he did was show in a sense, his, what they thought was his approval of that sinner. They saw the tax collectors and the sinners as the bad people, and they saw themselves naturally as the good people. Except the scripture declares to us there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is not a human being on this planet by themselves who is acceptable in the sight of God. The Pharisees felt like because they were born into the right tradition and because they kept all of the laws that they had earned the right to be in the presence of God. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And what Jesus is trying to illustrate, not just in his lifestyle, but in these stories, is that there's no one apart from him and his sacrifice that is acceptable before God. Even the most moral person among us needs a savior. So Jesus goes on and he tells this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Verse eight, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. 
Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angel when even one sinner repents. Now, we're going to spend the next couple weeks after today looking at the parable of the lost son, so I'm not going to take time to read it in its entirety. You've read it in your huddles, and I want to encourage you to keep reading it, but today I want to focus specifically on how all of these parables kind of tie together, because Jesus is trying to tell a story to, to come at the Pharisees and kind of rebut their murmuring, their muttering, their accusation. And so he's going to come to them and he's going to give them an understanding of sin and an understanding of salvation in the heart of God that they don't understand. And so I want to look first at the things that are lost. In these three stories, there's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and there's a lost son. The lost sheep has wandered away and now he is unable to help himself get home. When sheep wander away by nature, they are lost. They are unable to navigate their way back home. Sheep are not brilliant animals. You have probably heard a story at some time in your life about a dog who has wandered from home or been dropped off far from home. And he, because of his sense, been able to find him his way home. Sheep cannot find their way home. The only hope this sheep has is if the shepherd will go out and find it and bring it home. It's its nature not to be able to find its way home. The lost coin is even more incapable of being found by itself. There is no chance that that lost coin is going to jump out from the couch cushions and be like, find me. It's not going to happen unless the woman makes a diligent search. What does she do? She lights a lamp because Middle Eastern homes are dark. Even during the daytime, they're dark. And so if you're going to look for something, you're going to search for it, you need a little more light. If you want to look for something in your life, you're going to need more of the light of God's word, more of the light of his spirit to help us find it. And then she sweeps and she puts things in order until she finds that coin. So all three of these, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and I know I didn't talk much about the lost son, but all three of them are lost things and they represent spiritually lost people. They're all lost, but they're lost in different ways. The sheep is lost because of its nature. It wandered away and it can't find its way home. The lost coin is not lost because of its own fault. The coin did not jump off of the table and roll under the, the couch and is now lost. The, lost. the coin was lost because of the results of someone else, because of someone's carelessness, because of its environment. The son is lost in the parable of the lost son because of his own bad choices, because of his willful decisions. So all of them are lost, but they're lost in different ways. If you think of it this way, if there's a Mr. Smith and Mr. Smith has a problem with anger, Mr. Smith flies off the handle, he becomes verbally abusive and physically abusive, some would look at him and say, it's his genetics, it's his makeup, it's his nature. He just does it because that's, he was born that way. And while we believe that that's true to an extent because all of us are born with a sinful nature, you do not have to teach a child to sin, it's just natural, it's a part of who we are. That's 
partly true. But others would come along and say, no, he acts that way because of his environment. His parents were poor. They didn't treat him right. He had a difficult family life. He, he was abused in his past. But in some other way, someone else is to blame. He's lost because of his environment. But others would say, no, he only acts that way because he's selfish, because he's proud, and so he just makes bad choices. But in a way, all of them are correct. Because Sin is a part of who we are. It's born in us. It's in our nature. And it gets magnified by our environment, by how we're treated, and it gets deepened as a result of our own choices. And so what Jesus is showing is that there's a lostness to humanity, not just to some of the humanity, but to all humanity. He's also showing us that we have the inability to save ourselves. Most of us have been Christians a long time. Most of us in this room have been raised in the church or have been exposed to Christianity. And sometimes we get so caught up in the story of the lost son that we miss the idea that Jesus spoke this not to the tax collectors and the, the notorious sinners that were wayward. He was speaking this to the morally righteous people that were living in the house. I'm hoping that over the next several weeks as we look at this parable, it'll change our expectation of lost people and it'll change our attitudes toward them. Jesus makes a, a telling statement in Matthew chapter 21. He says, I tell you the truth, speaking to the Pharisees, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. I believe in the last days, the scripture tells us there will be many who sit in church pews that really have not made Jesus the Lord of their life. They've not understood the gospel. They've not understood what it means to give their lives to him completely, to make that exchange, if you will. You know, the idea of inviting Jesus to come and live in your heart is not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is I recognize that there's a righteous God and his standard is so high and lofty there's absolutely no possible way that I could meet that standard because if I'm guilty of one, I'm guilty of all. And the only hope I have is to put my confidence in what Christ did for me and then I come into right standing with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. And in that moment, I have decided to make an exchange I am exchanging my life, my will, my decisions, my choices for his. And so when he says, forgive others as I have forgiven you, it's not optional to me. It's not like, well, you know, I'll do that when I feel like it. It's okay. It's your way, and you've given me new life, and so I'll do what you've asked me to do. And some of us wrestle with the very things that God has told us to do because we've never made the exchange. We've never surrendered our lives to God, but we like what Jesus did for us, and I would, I'll add him to what I do, but I'm not ready to give everything to him. I'm not really to change my life or my mindset. But Jesus is reminding us that all of humanity is lost, but we're just lost in different ways, and we're all unable to save ourselves. Some are lost because they've wandered away, and some are lost in the house. Don't miss that. When this woman is looking for the coin, she's looking in the house. The Pharisees were thinking that the, the lost sheep, the, the parable of the lost sheep and the, the sheep that wandered away, those are the tax collectors, those are the sinners. When Jesus starts to talk about them being lost in the house and that climaxes with the elder brother in the story of the lost son who was more lost than the brother who wandered away. Don't 
miss that. Because all of us are equally lost and unable to save ourselves. If you've only broken one commandment in your entire life, you are just as lost as the person that has broken every commandment multiple times. And nothing you can do can save you apart from what Christ has done. So the story gives us this clear picture of sin and the lostness of humanity, but it also gives us a clear picture of God's heart for humanity. And it's illustrated in the joyful seekers in each of these stories. If you notice, there's joy in the person that's out looking for the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. There's not anger, there's not frustration, there's not disgust. He doesn't find the sheep and be like, you stupid sheep. She doesn't find the coin and just be like, oh, I just. She doesn't even beat herself up. She lost her own coin. She's just so overwhelmed by the, with joy because she found what was lost. See, in our society today, most of us, most of society thinks that all of human beings are seekers. We're just trying to seek God. We're just trying to find our way to God. And we're just, if we just seek hard enough or seek long enough or seek sincerely enough, we're going to find him. But the problem with that is that if we feel like we've searched for God and we found him, it causes us to disdain those that don't search at all. It causes our attitude towards sinners who are not trying to say, well, I found God. Why aren't you looking? If we feel like we're in this room today because of our own searching or our own seeking or our own merit, if we feel like we've charted out the course of our life by our own self-achievement, we do not understand the gospel. Because the gospel says that none of us seek God. That there's none of us that is righteous. The, The gospel says when Jesus came, he came at just the right time. When not one of us would have sought him, he sought us. The thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion of the world, every other religion of the world says if you just seek after God, you're going to find him. But the scripture says you won't even seek after God if he doesn't seek for you first. And we lose sight of that when we serve God for a long time. And because of that self-righteous position, it's so easy to look down our nose at those who are not interested in the journey like we are. We think we've done it. We've prayed hard enough. We came to church enough. We served enough. And if I did it, they should be able to do it too. And the very ones that the Father wants us to reach, we're disgusted by. The reason that sinners most likely don't sit in our pews is not because we preach the truth. It's because they can smell the self-righteousness a mile away. Yeah, that's the hardest statement to wrap my head around. How many of you know that your house has a smell? Do you know? I mean, you do. And we all get used to our smell. And so, you know, in fact, my, if you would like to volunteer your nose for our house, I bet my wife would hire you to come in and tell us what you smell. Because don't we, we try to like, we try to make our house smell good. And so, but we get used to our smell. And it's not a bad smell, it's just your smell. I don't want our church to smell like self-righteousness. But we can get used to the smell of self-righteousness. To the point that we expect the world to start acting moral like us because we did it. 
But the only reason you and I even think about acting moral is because we've received what he's done for us. Rightness and righteousness are not the same thing. And if you think your rightness makes you right with God, you're fooling yourself because the scripture says our rightness is filthy rags. And so we don't do right things to earn God's approval. We do right things because he's already given us his approval. And the reason that Jesus was eating with sinners was not to say to them, you know, I approve of your sinful lifestyle. You just go ahead and keep living that way because he confronted it. He confronted the woman caught in adultery and said, go and sin no more. The difference was he wasn't going to condemn them for that position. He came to save them. But he sat with them because he wanted the Pharisees to understand they were just as lost as those people. And when we start attending church a long time, we lose sight of that. And we forget that. And we need a revelation of the gospel to remind us that we didn't find God, he found us. Before you and I had enough sense to find him, God was arranging circumstances and people and places so we could become aware of his grace. Just recently, I felt led to buy a book, and I felt like bringing it in here today, but it's still in my office, and I should have listened and brought it, but it wasn't in my notes. But it's a book that's this thick, and it's a book of colleges. And my senior year in high school, I'd played wishy-washy Christian, you know, pretend to be one thing, but really be another. And I found Trinity Bible College in a book like this. And the reason I bought it is because I want to remind myself that I didn't find that because of who I am. I found that because of his grace. And God was arranging things in my life when I was not even thinking about him. And it's only by the grace of God that I am where I am. And so when someone else doesn't measure up, I can't look at them and think, well, why don't you do what I did? Because I've done nothing except reach out for his grace. And I wouldn't have even done that if he hadn't put so much in place. All the time, he's been searching for us and looking for us, and we are not here today because of our merit. We're here today because of the depth of the love of God. Even in the story of the lost son, who came to his senses and decides he's gonna go back home, he came to his senses and thought, oh, if I just go home, maybe I can do enough good stuff. Maybe I can just earn my place. That's not, that's not the kingdom. You can't earn it. All you have to do is admit you're lost. And so the Pharisees felt superior to the sinners and the tax collectors because they had a faulty view of their rightness. And Jesus tells these stories to begin to shatter our idea of what it means to be good. And so we have this table that we see. And on one side of the table, we have those who believe they've earned the place at the table by doing all the right things. And on the other side of the table, we have the son that doesn't think he even deserves God's love and favor. And one side of the table is lost because they've created a savior out of themselves. And the other side of the table is lost because of ignorance, environment, and poor choices. And Jesus tells us this story to tell us that his mission and his mandate is about seeking lost humanity. So no matter what side of the table you find yourself on if you're lost because of your superior religious self-righteous superiority or you're lost because you've wandered away it doesn't matter he came for you and he came to invite you to the table 
This message over the next five weeks is gonna challenge us to search our hearts and allow the Spirit of God to challenge any self-righteous superiority in our hearts. And I pray that it burdens our hearts for the people on the other side of the table. Whether it's the, 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 the lost sons, but there are people that are coming into the kingdom of God that recognize the spiritual religiosity and the self-righteousness on the other side of the table, but don't forget the father's heart was to go out and plead with that son too. We have this idea that we can serve God apart from being in right relationship with each other in the body of Christ, and that's a, that's a lie. Because in the body of Christ, if we truly have the heart of the Father, we have a heart for both sons. And we're not going to condemn either side of the table. We're just going to make an invitation. The theme in each of these parables shows us the heart of God. I came to seek and save that which is lost. It's not the healthy people that need a doctor. The sick people do. I didn't come to call those who think they're righteous. I came to call those who know they're sinners. And then he tells us to imitate God in everything we do because we're his children. The theme in each of these parables is the joy of the the one that has found what was lost. But because the Pharisees didn't see themselves as sinners saved by grace, they couldn't understand the joy of Jesus sitting at the table with tax collectors and prostitutes. All they could do was look down on them. We need to guard our hearts against that to be careful that we don't sing that we're sinners saved by grace, but not live it. In our society today, there are Christians that we shout moral rights scriptures all over Facebook and all over signs, and we expect those that are out there lost to understand that they need to come to Jesus because they, they need to be morally right. This law was not given so that we could show people the way to God. This law was given to show people we need God. And we're trying to get people that have never had a heart change to act like they have. And most of the time it's because those in the church are trying to do that. We've never come face to face with the fact that I am as lost as a pedophile. I mean, how could someone who physically or sexually harms children be just as bad as me? That's the nature of lostness. And when I understand that and I come to the cross and I make that exchange, it changes everything. It changes everything. I think we would be wise to take the warning of Jesus to heart that he gives us throughout these parables. Because at the end of the third story that we didn't read today, it was the lover of prostitutes that was having a party, and it was the elder brother who never did anything wrong and who stayed at home and worked for the father who was left outside. And it wasn't because he wasn't invited. It was because he refused to go in. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. We're going to take several weeks and walk through this parable of the, the lost son that, I, as I said, I didn't take time to read today. And I read this book a few years ago, and it, it was a good message to me, but I read it again uh, last November, 
And uh, I'm, I guess I'm in a, a season of my life where it made way more of a profound impact on my heart. The self-righteousness that so easily creeps into my heart. And I want to ask you some questions. And, you know, you're not closing your eyes to be spiritual. You're closing your eyes because I want you to focus on nothing but the, what I'm about to ask you. Do we understand that we're here in this room because he found us? Do we understand that even the most moral one of us sitting in here is in the same need of a Savior as the worst person that we can imagine in our minds right now? Do you understand that sonship is not earned, but it's conferred just by putting on a robe of His righteousness? See, I believe there are some of you in this room that you're lost sons. And because of elder brothers, you've been trying so hard to earn a place at the table. Well, on behalf of elder brothers everywhere, I apologize to you. You have a place at this table because of the robe of righteousness that our Father will put on you when you come to Him. My question is, as a result of the sonship that has been conferred on us, are we going after those who have wandered away or are we more worried about sitting here and waiting for them to come to us? Do we have the heart of our Father? Are we more angry at people that aren't acting like us than we are concerned about going after them and loving them the way that Jesus did? Are you and I willing for this house to be swept, to have a light turned on, to face our own lostness, so that sinners are welcomed here because we understand that you and I are also sinners saved by his grace. That we're here because he found us. It's easy for us to think that this building is here, that these services happen because you and I work hard but it's only by his grace and some of us are more concerned with our work in the house than we are the son that still needs to find his way home and over the next several weeks I feel like the Holy Spirit layer by layer is going to peel self-righteousness off of our lives. Please understand that Jesus didn't come to condemn you. The worst part of this story for me is that we're left hanging because we don't know if the elder brother comes in or doesn't come in. 
the story's left with the response of the elder brother. And so the question for us is, what will our response be? Some of you are in this room today and there's an invitation to come to the table and you know you're away from God, it's obvious because of, you're one of the, the side of the tax collectors and the sinners and you're away from God. Jesus has given you an invitation to come to the table. And Bailey, if you wanna just play some music in the background. And I'm gonna ask you, if you're here and you know that that's you. You feel unworthy to come to the table, but you know that he's invited you to the table. And you're lost because of sinful nature. You're lost because of your environment. You're lost because of some thing that happened to you. You're lost because of some bad choices you made. I don't care why you're lost, but you say, I'm lost. And if you're in the room and that's you, I want you right where you are to slip up your hand and say, Pastor, I'm, I'm the lost son. I'm the lost sheep. I'm the lost coin. And today I want to respond to that invitation and I want to come home. If that's you, just slip up your hand so I can see it because we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray for you. The other invitation that's out there is the one to the elder brother. Maybe you're in this room and you've done everything right. And maybe you don't fully understand the depth of the self-righteousness that's in your heart, but you know that the Holy Spirit today has said, that's you. You've made yourself feel better by looking at the sins of other people. And maybe you don't sleep around and maybe you're not a drug addict and maybe you pay your tithe and you go to church all the time and you think you have it all right. But if the Holy Spirit today is making you aware of a stench of self-righteousness in your heart, don't, don't quiet his voice. If you're here today and you say, you know, pastor, that's me. I promise you that over the last year, this book has really worked in my heart in a way that it has stripped away self-righteousness. And just when I think that maybe it's finished its work, the Holy Spirit comes and peels another layer of that thing off. because I was raised in church and because I went to Bible school and because I did so many right things, it's easy for me to fall into this category over and over again. But I want the Holy Spirit to continue to peel layers of self-righteousness off of my life because the only reason I'm here is because He sought me. And if He's speaking that to you, would you slip up your hand and say, that's me, and today I'm gonna peel a layer of self-righteousness off. Anyone else? Anyone else? Nothing spiritual about raising your hand. There's other ways that God speaks. Your hands are going up all over the place. But what you're doing is you're agreeing with the word of God today and saying, God, I don't want this. 
peel it off. Peel it off. I want to invite you to stand with me. For those of you that have raised your hands, I'm not going to embarrass you because that's not my intent. This isn't a message of, of shame in any way. And whether you are a lost son or you're an elder brother, I don't want you to feel ashamed. I want you to understand that there's a God who has been searching for you. today he just wants to capture your heart and so I'm going to encourage you before you leave to take a moment to allow him to do that whether you just sit in your pew or you kneel somewhere or maybe you want to admit that to someone and agree with them I want to invite our prayer team to come now to the front if you need to admit that to someone you want to pray with someone they're going to be here for you if you need to be prayed for for anything you need a healing in your body you need a miracle in your life they're going to be here for you i'm going to join them in just a moment and i'll be here too we're just sinners saved by grace wanting to let the holy spirit flow through our lives to minister to you today but i challenge you before you leave to allow the message that the Holy Spirit has spoken today to just really settle in your heart. And in the weeks ahead, as you meet with your huddle and discuss, as you read the book, I pray that layer by layer, he pulls off self-righteousness. And you know, the thing about letting him pull that off is it makes more room for his love to fill your heart. The love that he has for you, the love that he has for others. And it takes the pressure to perform off of you and set you free. So Jesus, I thank you today that you loved us enough that you saw value and worth in us when we were at our worst. You didn't wait for us to try to feel our way to you, but you stepped in and you came to us. I thank you that you are a God of love that desires to bring us back into right relationship with you. Father, I pray that not just today, but in these weeks ahead, that you'd help us to heed the warning of this message because you are a God of love that rejoices when sinners and when humanity comes to you, but you're also a God that will one day have to judge. And if we don't heed this warning, like that elder brother, we're gonna be left outside at the day of the feast. So Holy Spirit, soften our hearts. Show us the ways that we've been become accustomed to our own self-righteousness. Break us. Humble us. Because your word says that you draw near to the humble. And we want you near. 
So Holy Spirit, continue to minister to every heart in this room. And Father, I pray your blessing over this congregation. I ask that you'd bless them and keep them. I ask that you'd cause your face to shine on them. That you'd be gracious to them. You'd lift up your countenance to them. And that you'd give them peace. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. These altars are open to you. This prayer team is available to you if you want that. Otherwise, if you need to be dismissed, do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to spend some more time in prayer before they go. God bless you as you go.